Uh, I went through last year um, a few scriptures which seem to indicate that the formal examination period begins on New Year's Day or on uh, this year was April 4th. Uh, it says examine yourself before. Of course, we need to examine our attitudes and ourselves every day of the year, every minute and every hour for that matter. But uh, those scriptures seem to indicate, I'll not go back there at the moment, that the formal examination period is the 13 days leading up to the Passover. So we, we sometimes need a finite definition uh, because it's easy to just sort of go along and then maybe you start examining yourself 15 minutes before the Passover. You know, it's kind of hard to do a thorough examination as you sit in the chair just before it begins. But we need to be sure we're in the right attitude, the right approach uh, to God well ahead of time. All right, I'll not say more about that at this point. Uh, we had two weeks off. I, I want to do a very brief uh, summary of where we were last time I spoke. We ended up in Isaiah 49, and I'm going to continue this series about the living God uh, today, uh, partially because the material that we are studying right now is a very important lead-up to the Passover itself. And partly because, as we reviewed last time, uh, God is calling for a work here at the end to be His witness that He is the living God. And there's a great deal of instruction from Isaiah 40 on through where we are today and even a few chapters further on what the part of God's called out one should be in terms of preparing to help show who He is. He is quite capable of showing who He is in any form or fashion that He desires. But since He is dealing with people, and He traditionally has worked with people to do His work on this earth, nothing has changed, and He's going to use people again. So if we want to be some of those people that God uses to show His glory, what a wonderful time, what a wonderful thing that would be for us. But in 49, he's talking here, uh, verse 14. Let's review this real briefly. It says, But Zion said, The Eternal has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. It says he's... Witness in the palm of his hands. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall go from you. So God is going to run off any of those who would oppose us. And he's going to give us an opportunity to move forward. And he's going to send people. 18, he says, lift up your eyes round about and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to you. We'll see more of that as we go on here in the next two or three chapters. As I live, says the Eternal, you shall surely clothe you with them, uh, all as with an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. So when God begins to send people, we're to take them in, we're to 
take them like a bride does her bridal gown or her clothing for the bride, uh, for the wedding. Those are very dear and precious as a wedding comes, and a wedding is a very emotional thing. So we're looking at a very emotional time ahead when God begins to gather people together. Verse 20, The children which you shall have after you have lost the other shall say again in your ears, So here's something that's going to be said again. The church has come apart. It's lost her children for the most part. After you've lost those, shall say again in your ears, The place is too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. Conditions are too hard. I don't have place to go. I don't have the food I need, spiritually speaking. Please take me in. Give me a place that I may dwell. So that is then incumbent upon someone to be in a position that they have filled their lamp with oil and that they are able to take in and nourish others, to help them. That is why it is so important that we get close to God to prepare ourselves to be ready to help others, to give them strength when they are about to quit, when they, they're, they're done. They, it's too hard for me. I can't go on. Give me a place to dwell. Give me what I need to live. Then you shall say in your heart, Who has begotten me these? seeing I have lost my children and am desolate. You know, the church fell apart, it's gone, and suddenly these people start showing up. Where do these come from? You know, sometimes we feel that we are desolate and a captive, removing to and fro, that everything isn't rock solid, that everything isn't the way we would want it, everything isn't uh, given to us on a silver platter, if you will. So how can we take care of others when we ourselves have so many difficulties? Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where have they been? Well, they're going to show up someplace, sometime, I think fairly soon. And it's going to be time to serve, to help, to give, to take care of God's people. Somebody, somewhere, needs to find the answers, do they not? There has to be a place, somewhere in the church of God, that people can come and get the answers that they need. Who's going to stand up? Who is going to go through what it takes to prepare themselves to help others when they come seeking answers? The church is in a great spiritual famine right now. There is very little to hang their hats on. They don't understand what is coming next. Many of them are wandering about as lost sheep, not knowing what to do. Who will prepare? Who will be ready to help them? It says in verse 25, End of it, I'll save your children. I will feed them that oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. So God, once He begins to gather and He prepares a place for people to come, then He is going to protect that and He is not going to let anyone come to harm or to hurt. And all flesh shall know that I, the Eternal, am your Savior 
and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So, this is a theme that keeps coming back all through these chapters. That all flesh, the whole world, is going to know who God is, and where He is, and what He's doing. What a miraculous work there is just ahead. So let's, uh, with that background then, let's hit chapter 50. Thus says the Eternal. Now he says, I'm going to do this thing. I'll take care of your enemies. I'll protect you. And all flesh is going to know who God is as a result of what's about to happen. And then he gives some more instruction. Thus says the Eternal. Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Who are you? Children, where is your mother? Where is the bill of divorcement that I gave her? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Do we blame it on our mother, the church? Do we say, well, God divorced the church. God blew the church out of his mouth. But I'm okay. What does it say, God says? Where are the documents? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Isn't all mama's fault? It is our iniquities as individuals in our own sins, because we formed the children of the mother, the church. Now, some people might say, well, this is just talking about ancient physical Israel. No, it is not. Galatians 4.26 says that Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. So the New Testament viewpoint is that the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual church, is our mother. And our mother, the church, has been pretty well destroyed and God shoved her out on the street. Just as he did ancient Israel, because of her sins, he has done the same with the church. And it is our iniquities, compositely, that cause this to happen. Your transgressions have caused your mother to be put away. 1 Peter 2.9, I think, is a, I want to I turn back to that one. I've quoted Galatians 4.26 before, along with Galatians 6.16 where he's talking to the church here, and he says, Mercy upon the Israel of God, in Galatians 6.16. So the church is considered Israel. It is considered Jerusalem above, just as Hebrews 12.22 and 3 point out. But it can be a little confusing, perhaps, also, when it mentions, And many nations shall come to you. What does that mean in terms of the New Testament church? Let's go to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Because it gives an indication here that the church is also included as a nation. So he's talking here to the church, and he says, You are a chosen generation. They were in that day, in the early New Testament church, and God chose another generation here at the end to work through as well. So it is a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We're to be kings and priests on the earth. So God considers the church a royal priesthood in the making, a holy nation. So he speaks of the church in terms of Jerusalem, in terms of Zion, and also in terms of a nation. 
So when you see a nation in some of the prophecies, you can apply it first to spiritual Israel, since that's whom he's dealing with now, and then ultimately as a physical nation, whom he will begin to deal with very shortly. And once Israel has been humbled, decimated, destroyed, really, then other nations will begin to come in the millennium. But in the meantime, those redeemed of God now, and it goes on to say that, a holy nation, a purchased people. We used to read that peculiar. That's not what my margin says, and it's not what's in the original Greek. We may be peculiar enough, but... Uh, this is talking about a purchased, a redeemed people. And who is a redeemed out of the earth but those whom he has given his spirit and spiritual understanding here at the end about who God is. A purchased people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is spiritual understanding. This is the church he's speaking of. There's nobody else that he's called out. So he includes us as a nation. So when it says, the nation, or nations will come to you, then that is, first of all, speaking of the church later on of the physical nations of Israel in a, in a final fulfillment. So, verse 2 of chapter 50 in Isaiah. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? Well, God looks down at the desolation on the church and says, what is there? Is there any man there? When I called, was there none to answer? Is anybody really responding to these scriptures and to the God who caused them to be written? Or are they ignoring most of the Bible and just carrying on with Matthew twenty four fourteen almost exclusively? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? All right, we see the church in a mess. And God asks these questions. Is my arm so short that I can't reach down and pull some people out and redeem them? Or have I no power to deliver? Now, these are questions we might at times ask ourselves. Maybe we don't read them often enough, and maybe we get to questioning. Well, it's such a mess. What's the answer? Is there any answer? Well, God's posing these questions here. Think about it. God's arm too short? Is he not powerful enough? Is he alive or is he not? Sometimes we pray and it doesn't seem like we get much of an answer, right? All our prayers aren't answered. Or sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes God does not hear us if we're not in the right attitude because he hears not the cry of sinners. So... It's all on us, isn't it, really? To repent, to change our attitudes, to come to God with uh, humility, meekness, put aside our pride and our vanity and ego. Is it his problem or is it ours? He just said up there, <laughs> the church was blown apart because of our transgressions. So it's not his problem, it's our problem. He says when we seek him with our whole heart, we're going to find him. Do I have no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinks because there is no water and die for thirst. He says, you think I'm powerless? I can 
part the seas, dry up the rivers, dry up the sea. A lot of power there. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. He can change weather. He can change conditions. He can make the skies dark. He's looking forward here to the day of the Lord. So what's he doing? He's saying, I, I dried up seas and rivers in the past, and I can clothe the heavens and the earth with darkness in the future. So he's saying, as a matter of history and as a matter of prophecy, I can do as I please. I do have the power. Now, why is he saying this? Because he wants us to recognize that it truly is there. That he's not a figment of the imagination, but he is a living, powerful God who can and will intervene in the lives of mankind. Verse 4, the eternal God has given me the tongue of the educated, or the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. So, Isaiah is not talking out of school here at all. To me, Isaiah is one of the more encouraging, inspiring writers in the whole Bible. There's a lot of inspiration and encouragement in the Psalms and in various places. And indeed, the whole Bible is inspiring and well-written and inspired of God, so it can all be good. But I do believe that Isaiah, to me, gives me more encouragement than almost any place I can open the Bible and read. It just, he just has a way. And that's what he's saying here. God has given him that tongue. That he would just know what to say, how to speak the right word at the right time to help the weary. <clears throat> and I think that right now, many people that were the called out ones of God here at the end time are simply growing weary. It's getting difficult. It's hard to be a human being. And when we are fighting ourselves it becomes even more difficult. You know, people out in the world, they can eat, drink, and be merry. They can do whatever they want. They're not under any particular rules, regulations that they have to keep. They can do as they feel. They can please their senses in pretty much any way they want to, whatever their desires are. Now they wind up in misery and unhappiness because their appetites get them in trouble. But they don't have the instruction or the rule, the rule of law that we live under. Because we have to watch ourselves at all times. And that becomes a weariness even in itself. Not only do you have temptations and problems, if you give in, then you have to repent and you have to get back within the rules. And that's not easy to do. Very hard to do. So it becomes wearisome. Well, Isaiah is giving us some words here to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us realize that no matter how weary we might get, and we're warned in another place not to be weary in well-doing and doing that which we ought to do, it's easy to get weary, it's easy to get tired, spiritually, emotionally, physically. 
He speaks a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned, or as the educated, who have spiritual understanding. Now, yes, it's difficult for you and me. But at least we understand a great deal about what God is doing, why He's doing it, what He is about to do, and what the near future holds. <coughs> now, that in itself is very encouraging. We need to read it often. I go back to these scriptures myself time and time and time again. If I begin to feel frustrated or down or impatient, I have to go back and go through all these scriptures where God gives me the strength, the courage that I need to keep moving. Do you get weary of hearing week after week about how good you ought to be? Of course you do. Get tired of getting yelled at? Yes, you do. Get tired of being people hammering at you? Sermons and sermonettes every week? Of course you do. On the other hand, we all need it. The Eternal has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. So God has opened our ears, and we're to be as Isaiah was. And then there is an analogy here, or a type given about Christ himself, who is the example. And here we begin to get into a little bit of Passover language. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So he goes right in from this thing about weariness and so on and tells us, think about your Savior. Think about what he went through. None of us have gone through what he went through. Sometimes we feel down, discouraged. Why? Because we're thinking of ourselves primarily. You know, selfishness is not a virtue. Do you realize that? It's not listed among the fruit of the Spirit. Selfishness and thinking about self and worrying about self is counterproductive. It just gets us discouraged. Who can think of himself a lot and not be discouraged after all? <coughs> There's a lot to be discouraged about if we're thinking about ourselves. Now, we're here to examine ourselves, and maybe that's one of the reasons that we get frustrated and discouraged before Passover. Because we begin to look at ourselves and realize, there's not much here. I'm not much. Who am I to take Christ's Passover to myself in the condition that I'm in, and with all the sins and faults and problems and attitudes that I still have? So we need to examine and see what's wrong without getting our focus so much on ourselves that we then get discouraged to the point we want to give up and quit. He says, do examine yourself and then do take the Passover. <coughs> if you're in the right attitude. If you don't get your attitude straight, then you're drinking damnation to yourself anyway. So we can't be there. We can't do that. We have to straighten up. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. So he says, when you do get weary, think about he who went through more than we have.
He gave his back to the Snyders. Stripped the skin off his back with the whips. That's not happened to you. It's not happened to me. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Pulled his beard out. Chunk by chunk. You know, pulling one hair isn't too bad. But some, when somebody takes a big handful of it and jerks it out in a clump, that is terribly painful. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So the ignominy, the shame, the humility that he had to have to be able to have people just spit in his face and not get excited, not get angry, not spit back. He could have called a host of angels and wiped them all out. Of course, it would have been his last act because he would have been doing contrary to what he had come here to do and what his father wanted. So he just took it. We think we are so burdened. Well, we need to maybe get our minds off ourselves and off he and on he who actually did something for us and can save us. Because we do need save from ourselves, do we not? For the eternal God will help me. There's our source of help. Go to God and cry out. Seek help from God. Therefore, shall I not be confounded because I go to God, because I seek Him out. I fast, I pray, I do whatever I need to do. I read His Word to give me the strength. We have a lot of people here who are single, who are fighting the world, fighting natural, normal urges. We have a lot of people here who are sick, who could easily get discouraged and down because of being just physically ill and feeling lousy. We have people with all kinds of spiritual difficulties and problems they're fighting. It's easy to get fr frustrated, discouraged, and down. We worry about ourselves and our plight. Well, we go to God. He can help us. I'll not be confounded because I do have an answer, a place to go. Go on our knees and really seek God because He does have the answers. You know, Christ lived 33 and a half years here on the earth, never had a girlfriend, never was married, never had children, never had a wrong thought. He had drives and temptations in his body, his mind of all kinds. He suffered at all points, like as we do. And yet he never gave in to his baser emotions and desires, and even normal desires that would lead to sin and the breaking of the law, he never gave in to. Go to he who can give us strength, so that we'll not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. We've all seen flint arrowheads, I suppose, and, and, and flint out on the ground. It's a very hard substance. <clears throat> it doesn't bend. You can make arrowheads, spear points out of it, so hard that you can use them in battle. They will pierce flesh. That's how we have to set our face. 
Christ set his face, he says, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to break. I've set my face like a flint. Well, you have to set your will, set your resolve, set your mind to do what needs to be done. Not easy to do, but that's what he said. I went to God. I got help. I'm not going to be confounded, and I am setting my jaw, my face, and I am not going to give in to anything which is contrary to God's way. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Why do we get ashamed? We get ashamed when we do what's wrong. We're ashamed of ourselves. We are ashamed to let anyone else know what it is that we might have thought or done. Because it is shameful to go away from the ways of God. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? You know, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I set my face like a flint, I make up my mind what my course shall be, and I follow it in spite of myself. He says, I won't be ashamed. And who is going to argue about that? You know, if we do wrong, we think wrong, we act wrong, we got a bad attitude, then there's a point of contention, and somebody might get after us for that. But if we do it right, well, there's no penalty. Nobody's going to get on us for that. Why would anybody contend with you if you're doing what you ought to be doing? Let us stand together. What we have just talked about here and described is difficult for each and every individual. And we do need each other to support, to strengthen us, to help us, sometimes to talk over our difficulties, our tendencies, our problems, and get encouragement in a time of need. You need to be careful who you talk to about certain things, I suppose. Birds of a feather, or people that drink too much, let's say, just pick out an example. You know, here's a, here's a person with a drinking problem. Well, I got one too. There's somebody I could probably talk to. Yeah, you'll both be crying in your beer. So maybe talk to somebody who has fought the problem and solved it. They might be able to help you. Somebody who has fought the problem and failed might not be the best help. <clears throat> you see? But we need to stand together. We are a family. It's what God tells us to be. And we can't do it all alone. That's why we have the Sabbath, Sabbath services, to come together and be reminded of these things, at least formally, once a week. If you get away <clears throat> from a local congregation, you try to grow and overcome, it is very, very difficult to do. When you're away from God's people, even if you're listening in on a radio or a telephone or something, and you're or maybe getting the tapes or going to the website and hearing it, it's not the same. When you're off to yourself, you start sliding backward. It is very difficult to go forward. That's why he says we need to stand together. Something about it, the synergy of a group, is better for us than being on our own. 
it's easy to grow lax. Yeah, we complain once in a while about how we're in a goldfish bowl here. All these people around all week long. You can't just sort of go away from church and, and see you next Sabbath. No, we see each other coming and going. We see each other around. We talk with each other. <clears throat> and maybe it does feel like you're in a goldfish bowl. Well, if you're, if you're a proper goldfish, that shouldn't bother you. Goldfish are pretty. If you're an ugly goldfish, you've got a problem. You know, why, the reason we don't like to be observed is because we don't like people to see our faults and our weaknesses. And therefore, we are so sensitive. If anybody says anything about us, we want to be sure that they were in the right attitude and they weren't putting us down. Because it is shameful and it is embarrassing for us to even admit that we might even begin to have a problem. Now, we know it. And we'll admit, everybody will admit quickly, that they're not perfect. You know, that's an easy admission to make. Well, I'm not perfect either. That's fairly easy to say. Now, if somebody says, well, now, how are you not perfect? Please explain to me. I'd like a list. Now we're getting in real touchy ground. We'll, we're happy to admit we have problems. But we don't want anybody to know what they are. That's a totally different alligator. So let us stand together. <clears throat> Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. You know, sometimes I think about Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. He's the biggest one. Now, we're playing into Satan's hand and his attitude when we accuse one another. But he's the one that goes to God's throne constantly, daily, to complain about you and me. He goes to God. He calls us by name. Yeah, Satan knows us too. And he goes before God when you and I make a mistake, a sin. <laughs> and he gives this real sarcastic laugh. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's one of your called out ones. That's one you're redeeming from the earth. Look at them down there. Look what they're doing. Look at that attitude. You think that's not frustrating to God? To have Satan there before his throne, day in and day out, accusing you and me? We need to think about that and not give occasion to the adversary. To give him ammunition, you know? Load his gun for him so he can shoot us down. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Who can accuse us? We need to put ourselves in the position that Satan's gun is empty. Do we realize the spiritual warfare that is going on on a day-by-day -day basis for God to call us out and begin to work with us and redeem us from this world? And Satan wants to destroy every one of us. And here before Passover season, or in Passover season, it seems that people get discouraged more easily. And it seems like Satan is far more active during this time. He's after us in any way he can to put us in a wrong attitude, a bad, a down approach before the Passover. 
because he knows that we're about to acknowledge and in that sense redo our contract with God for the coming year. Not that we have to get rebaptized. God doesn't have us go through that. We've been there. We've done that. But we need to renew that contract to set our face like flint for the coming year. And winding up the year that we've got is difficult. And Satan wants to put us in a wrong attitude. Fight him off. Go to God. So the adversary does not have ammo. Behold, the eternal God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moths shall eat them up. Now that continues somewhat the Passover language. You know, really, who could accuse Christ? Satan sent all those accusers, and it was all false. Every accusation they made against him was utterly false. It was all a lie. And yet he took it very patiently. He didn't let it get to him. We let it get to us if the accusation that's made is true. We actually did it. And if people bring it up, we don't like it a bit. But every accusation made against him, totally false. Verse 10, Who is among you that fears the eternal, that obeys the voice of his servant? Now this is interesting the way he puts this. Who, who fears God and obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Now, we can know the truth, we can have a certain fear of God, and yet, we can still be walking in darkness. That's what he's saying here. And has no light, because we forget about the laws of God, the rules. It's so easy to get our minds on ourselves, to the point we forget what we're supposed to be doing. You know, if you're being tempted, and you... Or wanting to do something, you know how easy it is to forget the rule about that? Because your mind is set on whatever it is you might desire that is illegal. And people say the Ten Commandments are negative because they say, for the most part, you shall not. Well, the reason it has to say you shall not is because most of the things it says you shall not do are things we want to do as human beings. Here are things you don't do, and here are things you do do. So it is possible. And that's where the church went. We knew the truth, and yet we were walking in darkness and didn't have any light. Let him trust in the name of the Eternal and stay upon his God. Now, we can get frustrated because things are not happening as maybe fast as we would want them to go. We can become a bit impatient, thinking, well, why doesn't God hear? Why doesn't God answer? Why doesn't He do this right now? Why doesn't He answer my prayers? Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And patience and trust, or faith, are very closely related. Do we truly trust God that He will do everything in the exact right time, in the exact right way, 
Or do we sometimes get impatient with him and say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You're not doing this according to my timetable. And become impatient. How much do we truly trust God? You start trusting God 100%, wholly, fully, in every aspect of your life, and then you start walking in the light. Then you're beginning to see. Let him trust in the name of the Eternal and stay upon his God. You see, it's a matter of surrender, isn't it? It is a matter of surrender. We have to surrender ourselves to God's way, to His being, to who He is, and to His laws and His rules. And if we surrender our lives entirely and totally to Him, total submission, then we won't be impatient. We won't be frustrated because we know we are in the hands of He who has the most concern for us in the universe. No one has the concern for you or me that God does. No one. Do we trust Him in that? To put ourselves entirely in His hands? Fear not Him who is able to kill the body, but He who is able to kill both body and soul. We fear the new world order too much. We fear the tribulation perhaps too much. We fear a lot of things that are about to happen in the world. Joblessness, afraid we're going to starve to death, or whatever. God is not going to let us starve to death. He may let us think we're going to a little bit, but He's teaching us patience and trust. That's what it's all about. But once we have that patience and trust, we'll go through anything He puts us through without becoming frustrated, discouraged, down, and worried. Doesn't he tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, take no anxious thought, don't worry? Trust me, he says. But we worry instead. That is not trust. That is not faith. Faith is quietly trusting God to take care of you while you do your very best to take care of yourself in the ways that he's given us to do. He'll not let us starve to death, but he says, who, who does not work shall also not eat. Don't feed anybody that won't work. So if you have the truth, you hear the voice, then you have to go the next step, and that's trust. And walk in the light. Behold, verse 11, all you that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks... Walk in the light of your fire. Now, if we're not going to walk in the light of God's truth, of His laws, if we're not going to surrender to His way, He says, all right, build your own fire. Make your own light. He's throwing a challenge here. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. This shall you have of my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. We think we have the answers. We think we know when God ought to fulfill the prophecies. We hold Him to our desires and standards in our minds. And as a result, we get frustrated. When will we quietly trust in patience and wait for God? 
Wait on the eternal. In patience, wait, it says. Or you have the alternative. You can build your own fire and walk in the light of it. You think you have a better answer than God does. He says you will lie down in sorrow if you take that route. All right, let's go to chapter 51. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. So he's addressed those who understand. And he says you, you may understand and still be walking in the dark because you're not really paying attention and, and turning loose and trusting me. You're trusting in yourself too much and the fire that you might build and the way that you want to go. You, shine, you don't wait for the light of God. You, you turn on your flashlight and say, I'm going this way. We need to be very keyed in on what God has to say. So we walk the right direction. There are a lot of people across the church of God today who interpret things a certain way. And they're going on off because they're not examining the scriptures very carefully and going in a direction that God doesn't want them to be going right now. They're trying to accomplish things that are not doing anything because that isn't where God is leading. That's not where he's headed. And, and they'll lie down in sorrow as a result of it. We need to examine the scriptures to find out what God wants in any given period of time. Because he does different things in different ways at different times. Always has. People take their own calling sometimes and determine what they wish to do. He's talking about that right here. So he says, hearken to me. Examine my word. That's where you're going to get the guidance you need. Careful study of the word of God. Because he tells us everything we need to know in this book about living in the end time, about the end time prophecies, about what's going to happen. Haven't we seen very clearly that he told us a long time before it happened what would happen to the church? How many were aware of that before it happened? How many a quarter century later are even yet aware of what God is truly doing and what he's about to do. Very, very few. They're not looking in this book. They're not taking it apart and putting it back together and reading here and reading there back and forth and comparing the scriptures and trying to see what it is that God is doing. Therefore, the light that they are producing isn't getting them anywhere. So he says, hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. He's talking to the church here. Physical Israel is not seeking or following after righteousness at all. So he can only be talking to those who are. So he's addressing you and me. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the eternal. There aren't many people in our nation today that are truly seeking the eternal. And there are very few in the church who are truly seeking the eternal. Like gold and like silver. Do we have God fever? God and gold fever, only one letter are different. We need God fever. Look unto the rock where you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you were digged. Now, who is the rock that we are hewn from? From Christ. He's the foundation. 
the chief cornerstone of the church. Look to the rock from whence we were hewn. Look to Christ. And also the hole of the pit where you were digged. So he uses mining here as part of the symbolism. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah that bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Abraham was a very, very wealthy man with gold and silver. I think I know where he dug it. We're supposed to go to the areas that God led Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The original promised land. Because he said that's what we would have as our inheritance. That's what he promised Abraham he would do was lead his seed, the seed of Israel, to that land that he gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now I ask you, where are we today? Are we in the Middle East? Are we in Asia? Where are the peoples of Israel? And where is the primary, the majority of the church? Right here in America, secondly, Canada and others scattered around the world. Because he has added Gentiles, nations around the world. But we have to be in the promised land, or God's promises to Abraham mean nothing. So he says, follow righteousness, seek Christ, and look to Abraham. Now why does it say that in the end time we need our hearts turned to our fathers? Our Father in heaven first, Our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those in Hebrews 11, second, and honor our physical fathers and mothers, third. And that is the order of importance that we need to honor our father and our mother. So the rock from which we are hewn, and then the hole of the pit which you are digged. So where did we come from? We came through Abraham and Isaac, through Sarah, the treasures of a pit. And I think you will find, before this is over, that even physical treasure is going to come out of a deep pit. Because that's what God does. God gives you physical and spiritual analogies all rolled together. And a thing can be fulfilled in many, many different ways. And we understand the spiritual by the physical, don't we? He made us physical, and he put a physical earth here, and said, I want you to comprehend me through the physical. Isn't that what Romans 1 is talking about? You want to believe in me? Look at the earth that I have created, and you will see me there. He doesn't show himself to us daily, but the eye can see. But we can look around every day and see the things that God has made. That's what Romans 1.20 is telling us. So he says, look to what I did with Abraham and Sarah. The ones where we came from. Weren't they both dried up? Wasn't it impossible for them to have a child? And yet, by a miracle from God... It happened. Look to that God. For the eternal shall comfort Zion. So he said, just as I comforted Abraham and Sarah 
in their old age, when they were both utterly impotent, it was impossible for a child to be conceived. For the Eternal shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Eternal. He is going to restore, I believe, in both a physical and a spiritual way, the desert and the wilderness. He's going to make them like the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Eden had what? It had both physical and spiritual blessings. It had the physical all around where there was total comfort. Everything they needed was there in that garden on a physical level. And it also had God in it. So it had everything you could need, physical and spiritual, provided. He is going to do the same thing again that he did for Adam and Eve. And this is premillennial. Now it also projects forward to the millennium. But he's dealing with the church first, always remember. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. When God turns this thing around and begins to bless, people will sing His praises, they will laugh, they will be full of joy, and the feasts or the fasts that we have kept, as per Zechariah 8 of the months about the desolation of Jerusalem and the need for God's deliverance, are going to be turned into feasts of joy, it says. And that is in the context before Christ ever comes back in Zechariah 4, or. 14. Hearken to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. Remember 1 Peter 2.9? We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a nation, he says, speaking of the church. So this isn't just physical Israel. For a law shall proceed from me. And I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. So, his law is going to be very much in effect. He says in Malachi 4, to hearken to Moses and the laws of God. And that's a very end time prophecy and a summary of all the prophecies right there at the end of Malachi, of the the minor prophets, if you will. Last one of of that book, that series. And he'll make his judgment based on what? His law, his rules, his regulations. And it will be a light of the people. So those who obey God are going to be blessed, and that will be a light that shines for the people of this world and for the church as a whole. But hey, God is there. All the darkness and confusion that has been among the called out ones over the last 20, 25 years is going to be changed. A light will shine when God does what He says He's going to do right here. My righteousness is near. Now, He says at the end of Isaiah 54 that it will not be our righteousness, but His righteousness. Our righteousness is not worth anything. We can strive and strive and strive, and yet we still have carnal human nature, which is enmity to God. We're deceitful and desperately wicked, and His Spirit has sometimes not near as much effect on us as it ought to have 
because our hearts are not right. So, try as we might, we fall short, do we not? So he says, I will forgive your sins, I will blot them out, and then I can shine my face on you, and you can walk in light. So he says, my, when you see these things start happening, we're talking about here. He says, my righteousness is near. My foul salvation is gone forth. He begins to actively work then to create salvation in us in a way that he hasn't in the past. Or I, I won't say hasn't in the past. He worked it in the early New Testament church. He worked it in a few individuals in the Old Testament. But his, his hand has not been set to save us right now, except through scattering and confusion and putting us through so much trial, trouble, and tribulation that we begin to truly repent. And once we begin to truly repent, then he sets his hand to save us out of this mess we find ourselves in and the squalor of our own failings. And my arms shall judge the people. His arms can be very strong and powerful to punish, to chasten, or they can be very loving and kind to pick us up and carry us like little lambs, as it says that Christ will do there in Ezekiel 34. When men have failed, Christ is going to come forward and carry us like those little lambs. Had an experience this very morning. We're lambing right now. And Marla went out to feed. And here was a mother that had two babies. One was up and nursing and doing fine. The other was laying in the manure, cold, not moving, barely breathing. Just a cute little lamb. Almost dead. She comes carrying it in the house. I was still asleep. I was fairly early this morning. Carrying it in the house. I, I hear her bawling crying, saying she needs help. Here's this little lamb about to die, just like a lot of people in the church today. It can't help itself. It doesn't know what to do. Barely breathing. Can't get up, find its mama. I don't know whether she rejected it right off after it was born and took the one, or whether it just wasn't able to get up was weak when it was born, I don't know. But she comes in with it wrapped in a blanket, holding it, cradling in her arms. And that your heart just melts. My poor little lamb, about to die. Well, we got out the hair dryer and dried it off and tried to get it. It wasn't even shivering, it was so far gone. Dried it off. After a while, it began to shake and shiver. Try to get a little bit of moisture down its throat. I went out and milked a little bit of milk out of Mama to get some colostrum out of her. Had to slap her a couple times to get her still, let her milk me, let me milk her. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> but I got the milk in there. She got a little bit of it down its throat. Pretty soon it began to shake its head a little bit, began to wake up. Before I left to come over here, it was standing up, bad at Mama Marla. Give me more. So it came out of it. Now, isn't that about the way the church has been before God? The spiritual 
dearth and famine that Joel, uh, that Amos talks about. About to die. It's like Mama left us. Where's your mother? Where's the bill of a divorcement from your mama? Why is the mama taking care of you? Well, our king and our counselor died, as it says in Malachi, or Micah 4. We're just left to die. But he says, My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms shall judge the people. And if they are repentant, he's going to come up and pick them up and cradle them like a little lamb and succor them and bring them back to life, nourish them and strengthen them. Now we've got a problem. Once it got up and got moving around, we thought, well, let's take it back to, out to the mama. It'd be better if its own natural mother could raise it, nurse it, put it in there. She smelled it a couple times and started butting it. We'd left it in there, she'd have killed it. Now I may be able to go out there later and squirt some milk on it out of her and there's a chance she might still accept that lamb. But if not, what do we got to do? Feed it every few hours for weeks. Nurse it back to health ourselves. Isn't that what he tells us to do? People are going to come. They're going to gather themselves together and say, give me what I need. It's too hard for me. I can't make it on my own. Help. We read that back in chapter 50. Or no, in 49. The coast shall wait upon me, and on my arm shall they trust. Just like that little lamb had to have some help from somewhere. God says, you'll be able to trust in my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Don't look down at yourself. You'll get discouraged. Guaranteed. Look up to the heavens. Look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. So it says, you who are trying to follow after righteousness, look around. This is still premillennial. Christ isn't here. This is before the heavens vanish away and the earth waxes old like a garment. This is prior to the day of the Lord, if you will. This is a time when God's people need to be waking up, lifting their eyes to the heavens and on the earth, and understand what is about to happen, and turn to God. <clears throat> Hearken to me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. That can only be converted people. He's not talking to physical Israel here in the millennium. He's talking to us now. In the time when the earth is about to come apart. Hearken to me, you that know righteousness. I can only be the called converted ones. Redeemed from the earth. The only ones that know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law. So even people who know righteousness, those who know God's law, can still have problems. Can you believe that? That's us. That's us. We can still have problems even though we know. Fear you not the reproach of men. Neither be you afraid of their revilings. Don't worry about people. Trust in God. 
For the moth shall eat them up like a varmint, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. So what he's starting here in an end-time people is a righteousness that will never end, but will continue. Because we're the generation who will see the end of the age and will survive it and be in the first resurrection, we hope, or be changed if we're still alive. Then he gives a call. Verse 9, Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Eternal! Now, this isn't a call for us to wake up so much as it's a call for God to be alert, to be awake. They're calling, Isaiah's calling on God to be aware. He's the first one who has to react for any of these things to happen. O arm of the eternal, awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. This is a call for God to begin to do the things that he did with ancient Israel coming out of Egypt. The things he did at the Jordan with Joshua and the people. The things that he has done in the past. A call for God to wake up to do the things that he has done before. Now, it's not, it's metaphor. It's not that God's asleep somewhere taking a nap. It's just a call that God begin to act to do these things, to put on the strength that he has. His arm is not shortened. It's not that he can't do these things. It's that he has not been doing them because of us. And if we turn to righteousness, then it's time for him to awake in that sense and begin to do the things that he's done in the past. So the first call here is for God. Are you not it that has cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Are you not it which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that has made a depth, the depths of the sea away for the ransom to pass over? He tells exactly what he's talking about here. This is the God we want to hear from. The one who has done these things in the past. Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion. When God begins to act, when He begins to perform some miracles, then the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion. The gathering of the faithful will begin. But it's going to require God doing some action to wake them up, to make them see where they need to go and what they need to do. Without Him showing His hand, his mighty arm, they won't know what to do. So wherever this happens, and it's going to happen soon, it is going to be done with the power of the Almighty God that is going to cause people to say, oh, hey, there's where I need to be. And then they will begin to come. The redeemed shall return and come with singing to Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. Once this happens... The joy will be continual till the resurrection and forevermore. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. When God turns his face, turns his mighty arm, and begins to bless, and people respond to him, 
He takes care of them. I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the Son of Man which shall be made as grass? So it's a call to people now. It's not millennial. There's nobody there to be afraid of. All the New World Order and the beasts and everything are going to be destroyed by then. There won't be anybody around to fear. But there is now, isn't there? So he says, why do you worry about these people? Trust God. Why do you worry about the Son of Man which shall be made as grass and wither? That's what he calls for back in Isaiah 40, isn't it? What is the message? That all, gra- all men are as grass and they'll wither. So he's bringing that out again here. That the, I'm going to wither up the whole world. Why do you worry about the beast and the false prophet and all those things? Why do you fear that you won't have food to eat? Because you can't work or you have to work on Saturday or whatever. So you worry about men and forget the eternal your maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. The living God who's created us from the very beginning. We forget about Him. You know, when you're in trouble, you start looking for answers. And if somebody is threatening you, you worry about the threat. He says, don't worry about the threat that the world is going to bring upon you. Trust me. And I feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? God says, I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about that. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. All these things we worry about, he says. But I am the eternal your God that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. Let's not get confused about who we need to worry about and who we need to fear. We need to fear the God who can part the oceans and has the eternal of hosts. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. Zion is the church. Again, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. That's whom he's talking. That's who he is talking to here. You are my people, he will say. Verse 17, awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem. That's the church again, Hebrews 12, 22 and 3. Or Galatians 4, 16. Jerusalem from above. The spiritual Jerusalem, the church. Which have drunk at the hand of the eternal, the cup of his fury. We've done that. He scattered us for Laodiceanism, spewed us out of his mouth. We've drunk of the wine of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Where is the leader that can be followed today in the church? Herbert Armstrong was the one designated from the beginning to do the calling. And once God tore it all apart, a lot have tried to take the position of the leader. But nobody has been able to accomplish it. There is no one of all the sons that were called in the church 
who can stand up and be called the leader of the church today. No one. A few self-proclaimed ones that say, come here, come to me. This is the only place. I got your tickets to Peter right here. All you got to do is be here and do everything I say and everything will be okay. Not so. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. It's just not happening. Just not there. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation, destruction, and the famine, and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? It's just like somebody has taken a spiritual sword throughout the church and just cut us all apart and left us lying, bleeding in the street. He uses that metaphor here. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. As a wild bull in a net, they are full of the fury of the eternal, the rebuke of your God. You know, some of them may think they're bulls, but it's like they got a net thrown over them and it just neutralizes. He uses that different analogy there in Isaiah 39. It says they're all eunuchs, powerless. Here we use a bull in a net, same thing, powerless, can't do anything. And the fury of the eternal has come down on all of us. And we might as well admit it's come on us, too. It's not somebody else's problem. It's my problem. It's your problem. We have not been what we ought to be. Now, I'm saying some things here that are true. God wrote them. But aren't I powerless? Isn't Isaiah powerless? How many people listen? You can read these scriptures... People say, well, must be talking to somebody else, not talking to me. I'm Philadelphian. I'm okay. And since no one will take responsibility, no one repents. And it doesn't matter how much you read it. We can put it on the website. I'm just as powerless as any of the other ministers, aren't I? The only one that can empower you is your God Almighty on your knees humbly reading these scriptures and obeying what your Father in Heaven says. Surrendering to His rules, surrendering to His way, surrendering to His authority, and not surrendering to those people in the world, guided by Satan, who are going to have their own world rule. Turn instead to God. The only thing we have at this point is God's Word. And we're going to have him awake with his strong arm very shortly. And we're going to hear from God. Somewhere on this earth, he is going to work. So he says in verse 21, Therefore hear now this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. We're spiritually drunk, staggering around, not knowing where we're going. Isn't that the way a drunk is? Physical drunk, he again wanders about, he doesn't know what to do, he has no coordination, he has no goal and no purpose, he's just basically dysfunctional. Falls on his face, pukes on his clothes. I mean really drunk here. And we're a really drunk church. 
wandering about spiritually like we're falling down drunk. Drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Eternal, the, says your Lord, the Eternal, and your God that pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. So he says the whole church is wandering about like a puke drunk, but I'm going to take that out of your hand if you will respond to me, to the one who can dry the oceans, to the one who can protect you. Turn to me with all your heart, he says. I'll take that, I'll take that cup away from you. How encouraging to read. Isaiah is giving a word to the weary here. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, Bow down, that you may go over. And you have laid your body as the ground, and as the street to them that walked over you. Hasn't the world, the Babylonian system, walked all over us, gotten our focus off of God, gotten it on entertainment and self uh, Satisfaction and selfishness and materiality and all those things and pulled us away from God and they have walked all over us. But he says, I am going to punish them now and I'm going to take care of you. So we'll pick the story up there next time, God willing.